The passage of scripture which we're looking at this evening is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. And the title of this evening's message is The Most Tragic War of All. The Most Tragic War of All. Today we've taken time to remember the awful tragedy of war. We've remembered the sacrifice of the dead who gave their lives for their country. And we've also remembered the living who've been damaged by war mentally or physically. Continuing conflict is something of which we're only too well aware. Scarcely a news report passes without a reference to bloodshed somewhere in the world. But there's another and far more crucial conflict that never finds its way into the news reports. And that's the conflict between mankind and God himself. The hostilities that exist between the creatures and the one who created them. In our Bible passage this evening, Jesus is telling us a story about this war. At first it seems to be a story addressed only to the Israelites and their religious leaders in Jesus' day. But it actually conveys truths which are applicable to the whole of the human race in every age. As we consider Jesus' parable of the wicked vine dressers, one thing is clear. It's how completely Jesus understands you and me. Our first heading this evening, Jesus understands the human condition. When Jesus was telling this parable, he was being given the third degree. His interrogators were the Jewish chief priests and elders. He just entered Jerusalem amid a triumphant procession of his followers. It caused a minor sensation by throwing street traders out of the temple. The Jewish establishment were furious that Jesus should think he had the right to do this. So they agreed that they must question him as to what authority he had to act as he did. In verse 23 they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus knew that this question was loaded. He knew these men were trying to get him to incriminate himself, so he didn't answer them directly. Instead, he said this, The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. He was a figure held in the highest esteem by the people, but he'd been highly critical of the religious but he'd been highly critical of the religious leaders, and they hated him for it. So the chief priests and elders knew they were on dangerous ground here, and they groped to find an answer that wouldn't incriminate them. In the end, they came back with a rather lame response. We do not know. Jesus then told them a parable about two sons, their father and his vineyard. It was a parable which revealed what they really thought about John the Baptist. John's story, Jesus' story, made it plain that they'd rejected him. John had been the man God sent to pave the way for the coming of his people's saviour, Jesus Christ. Yet the so-called spiritual leaders of God's people had rejected him. Now to make his point even clearer, Jesus tells another parable involving a vineyard. And it's another story of the rejection by God's people of the messengers God has sent. And that includes their rejection of the one to whom the messengers were pointing, 
God's only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' use of the vineyard in these stories is very significant, and the significance would have been clear to the Jewish scholars who were questioning him. The picture was borrowed from the prophet Isaiah. This is what Isaiah wrote. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Isaiah then interprets this picture. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. You can find those readings in Isaiah chapter 5. Chapter five. The vineyard of which Jesus' parable speaks is the same as Isaiah's. It was Israel, the people of God. The one who planted this vineyard was God himself. The servants God sent as his representatives were the prophets of the Old Testament. But who were the wicked vine dressers in Jesus' parable? They were all too plainly the chief priests, the Pharisees and everyone in Israel who was like them. So this was the immediate application of Jesus' parable. And it wasn't lost on those who'd been interrogating him. In verses 45 and 46 we read this. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. But this isn't the only application of Jesus' parable. It's all too easy to think that it has nothing to do with us today, especially if we're not Jewish. But this isn't a story relevant only to the people of Israel in the first century AD. It's a story which is relevant to every people in every century. It's a story of privilege abused, of generosity despised, of responsibility shirked. It's a story that speaks of the condition of the human race generally. Jesus isn't just describing Israel when he speaks of this vineyard. He's describing a situation common to the whole of mankind. Jesus' parable is relevant wherever God's blessing has been answered by human contempt. Jesus is describing for us here in this parable the tragic condition of the whole world. We live in a world that's full of natural goodness provided by a faithful and loving God. It's a world that has got everything that human beings need. It's a world that was given to humans to look after but it's a world of which we humans have made a profound mess. <clears throat> so what has gone wrong with our world? Why have things turned so sour? Why have all our hopes failed? Why do people's dreams of a better society prove again and again to be fantasies? People ask what has gone wrong with our world, what Christ calls our vineyard. And Jesus says the problem is simple. People were placed in the vineyard as tenants. It was only leased to them. The trouble is, they want to be the owners. See what the vine dressers say in verse 38. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. A tenant is, of course, accountable to somebody. He pays a rent. 
But Jesus, and Jesus is saying here that the same is true of human beings. We are accountable too. We're accountable to God. We should be gratefully obedient to the God who gave us this beautiful world to live in. Each human being has some sort of conscience. Some consciences are naturally more sensitive than others. But people generally recognise that there are things which they ought to do and there are things which they ought not to do. And people question where this sense of right and wrong comes from. This is an issue which has occupied the minds of philosophers for thousands of years. Most people want there to be some sort of moral law, but they don't want there to be a moral law giver. They want a personal set of values, but they don't want a personal God. And without God to set the standards, who decides what behaviour is right and wrong? In his parable, Jesus implies what the source of our conscience is. He tells us why we instinctively know what's right and wrong. This instinct comes from the owner of the vineyard. It comes from God, our creator. Our conscience just reflects the fact that we were put on this earth as tenants, not as owners. So we owe something to our creator. Jesus says that this is the fundamental reason why the vineyard, this world, is in a mess. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, whoever they may be, everyone runs away from their accountability to God. Mankind generally has chosen to defy rather than to obey God. The Jews rejected the prophets, the human race in general has rejected God. There's basically no difference. We have God's word, the Bible. We have our conscience. So we're all without excuse. We are all sinners. We are all, as it were, tenants in arrears with the rent. That's why the owner of the vineyard intervenes in our lives. And this explains our immediate reaction when God does intervene in our lives. Like the tenants in the parable, we're not surprised at God's intervention, but we're resistant to his efforts. The Israelites wanted to be the owners of the vineyard rather than God's son, Jesus, and they failed. Mankind in general today wants to own a vineyard, this world, with God removed from it altogether. That dream too will fail. People have ambitions to play God, and they can't understand that the role is too big for them. It all comes down to the same thing. We're not content to be tenants in the vineyard. We insist on being owners. Just think how incredibly ungrateful this attitude is. God bestows such dignity on the human race. The Bible tells us that he made us in his own image. He gave us such potential, but we're highly resistant to him, to giving him anything in return. We reject anything and every body that God sends to remind us of the debt that we owe him. And we think we'll get away with it. People say, surely a God of love will tolerate anything. But will he? Jesus' parable says that eventually the vine dressers were punished for their wickedness. And one day God will bring everyone in this world to judgment. Yet Jesus' story also speaks of God's amazing patience. And it shows that patience was demonstrated most fully in God sending, sending his own son to save us.
Jesus' parable doesn't just tell us how he understands the human condition, it also tells us how he understands his own mission. Our second heading this evening, Jesus understands his own mission. In verse 37 we read, Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. What incredible patience God has. He has provided rebel human beings with one opportunity after another for repentance. And despite all this, he finds himself rejected every time. Yet still he desires to show his mercy. Still he restrains his righteous indignation and turns the other cheek. He will offer one last chance, even if it means gambling with the most precious thing he has. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying they will respect my son. It's important to remember the demand that prompted Jesus to tell this parable in the first place. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And here in his parable, Jesus is giving a straight answer to that question. Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. In a remarkable way, Jesus has introduced himself as a character in his own story. The prophets who came before Jesus were servants of God. But I am different, Jesus says. I am special. I am the son. And the importance of Jesus identifying himself with the son here cannot be exaggerated. Despite what the modernist theologians say, despite what other religions like Islam say, despite what the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, Jesus sees himself as quite different from the other servants whom God sent before him. He's quite different to the prophets. He has quite a different relationship to God the Father. Jesus shows in this parable a clear sense of his own uniqueness. The Son of God doesn't come merely to represent the King. He comes to be the King. He comes with the most specific purpose. He comes with the purpose of asserting his Heavenly Father's rights over his rebellious creations. He comes in a word as the Messiah, the Christ. He comes to bring in the long-awaited kingdom of God, which the prophets have spoken of. I am the son, Jesus says, not merely a rabbi, not even merely a prophet. I am the son of God. And that's why I have the authority to do what I've done. The owner says they will respect my son. God surely says the same today as he looks out upon our world. Jesus is Lord, and that's why we've got to listen to him. We've got to respect his authority. We have no choice. But the awful truth is that we didn't respect his authority. And the extraordinary truth is that God knew we wouldn't. In verses 38 and 39, Jesus says, But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. With these words, Jesus is predicting his own death at the hands of those whom he came to save. 
In this parable, Jesus is focusing on one element of what we generally miss in our thoughts about his crucifixion. My crucifixion, Jesus says, is the ultimate insult. It's the supreme gesture of human contempt for the rule of God. Jesus' crucifixion is the final snub that puts the lid on the centuries of snubs that God has received from the human race. People couldn't tolerate anyone who challenged them to admit the debt they owed. They couldn't tolerate anyone who called them to recognise their accountability to their maker. So they crucified him. Now, of course, it's at this point that we try to evade responsibility. We claim that the cross has nothing to do with us. It was the Jews, the Romans. We all know how barbaric they were. But we can't avoid the blame in this way. To do so is to run away from the true meaning of Jesus' parable. The whole point of what he's saying is that we're tenants too, you and I. In a spiritual sense, we were there when they crucified the Lord. Our hands weren't the actual hands that drove the nails through Jesus' hands. But our hearts are wicked, rebellious and irresponsible enough to have done it. I suppose we can plead ignorance. Indeed, Jesus pleaded it for us. As he hung on the cross, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. But Jesus' parable surely makes clear how generous that prayer was. He exposes the shallowness of our excuse. For if we crucify Jesus in ignorance, it was nevertheless a guilty ignorance. Jesus insists that these tenants were well aware of who it was they were murdering. Indeed, that's why they were doing it. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Jesus wants us to realise this. He wants us to be completely honest with ourselves. Jesus wants us to admit that we actually, that we actually do know who he is. And we too know that we don't want him in our lives. And we too know why we don't want him in our lives. It's our driving desire for independence. It's our lunatic ambition to play God. I want to do my own thing, thank you very much. I want to be my own master. This is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We've all said it in our attitudes in one way or another. And every time we've said it, we've added our personal nail to those that held Jesus to the cross. Yes, Jesus truly understands the human condition. He also plainly understands his own mission. But finally, his parable tells us how clearly Jesus understands the future. Our third and final heading this evening, Jesus understands the future. In verse 40, Jesus asks a question of his interrogators. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? The immediate application of this verse is a prediction of the future for the Jews. They rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So they forfeited their spiritual privileges to the Gentiles. See what Jesus says in verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. 
But it's stupid for us to think that the only wicked tenants in this world are Jews. We are all wicked tenants. And so it's ridiculous for us to assume that God is angry only with the Jews. No, Jesus confronts us all with the prospect of judgment to come. And he does this in these sobering words at the end of his story. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. It's a dangerous thing, Jesus says, to reject me. You're playing with fire. Put yourself in the owner's place in my story and you'll realise why. Do you really think God is going to tolerate the rebellion of the human race forever? Do you think he'll stand idly by, refusing to vindicate his beloved son before his enemies? No, a day of accounting is coming. What you do with me, Jesus says, will determine your final destiny on that day. You must choose. Either have your rebellious pride humbled, be chastened by recognition of who I am, or be judged, be condemned for your part in this world's hostility towards me. According to this story, God is being patient with us human beings. He has sent one servant after another, and finally he has even sent his own son. The danger is that we could be deceived into thinking that God's patience is infinite. But Jesus makes plain that it isn't. It's popular to speak of God as some kind of kindly old gent, all love, he'd never home a fly. But where have we got those ideas from? It certainly isn't from Jesus. There are times when righteousness demands anger. Anger at cruelty, anger at prejudice. We can't respect a person who remains unconcerned when confronted by real wickedness. So there are times when people ought to be angry. How much more will there be a time when God will be angry? Don't mistake God's patience for indifference. True, he's patience with us men, women and children, but he isn't indifferent towards our sins. We are accountable, and ultimately we'll be called to give account. Account for that missing rent of obedience. Account for those injured servants, God's messengers. Account for that murdered son, the Lord Jesus. How does Jesus see the future? He sees it as a day of accounting, a day of judgment. So few people today take hell seriously, but Jesus believed in hell. Again and again, he warns us about it as something real and dreadful. If hell were not a reality, why did the Son of God hang on the cross in such agony? It was only because he wanted to spare us from something even worse. The very word salvation would be meaningless if there were nothing to be saved from. Here is a God who sees us as individuals walking into eternal misery. He puts up signposts in our path to warn us. He sends messengers to try and persuade us, but we despise and ignore them. He even sends his own son, and he watches as we murder him. Yet still he persists in urging us to come to our senses. Still he persists in urging us to discover our true human destiny the destiny of fellowship with him as his beloved servants in this world. 
As Jesus' parable moves to its conclusion, he asks a question. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And Jesus' hearers reply, He will destroy those wicked men miserably, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers, who will render him the fruits in their seasons. We were all born rebellious tenants of God's vineyard of this world. In a spiritual sense, we were all there when Jesus was crucified. We've all rejected God. We've all presumed on his patience too long. We've despised his generosity too long. We've treated his son as a second-class feature of our lives too long. He waits now for us to say sorry. He waits for us to repent of our sin and turn to him for forgiveness. He waits for us to pay that long overdue debt of obedience that we owe him. But he isn't going to wait forever. It has been important for us to remember today the tragedy of war and those affected by it. But it's far more important for us to consider the great tragedy affecting the whole of the human race. Those who reject the God who loves us and gave his son to save us will go to a lost eternity. How vital it is that people everywhere realise their need to seek God's forgiveness, their need to repent and surrender their lives in trust to Jesus. Amen. Thank you.